Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And returned from Austin, Texas, we have our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hello, Katie. Uh, we were missing Mike Hogan today, uh, but he hasn't seen The Irishman yet, so what opinion of his do we need? Anyway? We're lacking our Irishman to comment oh. on The Irishman. <laughs> He's, well, he, I'm sure he will have a very hot take to come when he sees The Irishman, just we like know Joe and I will. Yeah, we, we know he has Judy opinions, though, so oh, I'm true. excited to hear those, too. Uh, yeah, well, uh, we're planning to talk about The Irishman and Judy and uh, a lot of other things. It's been a while since we talked about movies. We had the Emmys kind of jump in the middle, but we are so in the thick of award season now, mm-hmm. so there's a ton to talk about. Um, but we want to start talking briefly with the weekend's big release, um, I think we're going to talk more about Joker next week after uh, Joanna and I have had a chance to see it after it opens in theaters and kind of ends this many weeks of buildup that's been happening since it premiered at Venice, where uh, you reviewed it, Richard. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to mention that uh, Joaquin Phoenix is the star of Joker. He's on our cover this week. The story went online today as we're talking. It's really fascinating. He talks a lot about River Phoenix, which I'm not sure he's talked about in a long time. And it's just kind of like reflecting, not just, you know, not like getting into the details about how his brother died really young, um, but just kind of the effect it had on his career about how he was like the sad surviving brother for such a long time. And he tells a story about how when they were kids, River said something to him to the effect of like, you're going to be an actor too, and people are going to know you more than I do. And at this point, that's honestly true, which is really strange to think about. Um, and Richard, you wanted to talk briefly about uh, something we've been talking about with Joker that uh, you wanted to correct the record on. Yeah, someone pointed this out to me on Twitter, or uh, someone's plural, I think. Um, so I guess on a couple occasions, one or two, I don't remember, on this podcast, I said, you know, the Aurora shooting in 2012 during the the Dark Knight uh, rises um, that that the the shooter was dressed up like the Joker, which is I now ha- know, having read a Denver Post article and uh, a couple others, that that has been debunked. That is not true, and I apologize for spreading that misinformation. Uh, I think you're you far know. from the only one, though. That's yeah. a pretty common story that gets repeated about it. Yeah, and it's just an you know one of those kind of sorry situations where you know something gets said seven years ago that it wasn't true and that people like me are still <laughs> perpetuating now because we haven't done our homework. So uh, I apologize for that. Uh, I don't think that minimizes necessarily my, 
you know, uh, mildish concerns about this new Joker movie. Uh, it's kind of messaging. But yes, I was I was wrong about about the past incident for sure. And what is true is that that Aurora Theater has it at least moved its press screening of Joker from that theater. I don't know if it canceled all screenings there. Once again, I don't want to spread misinformation. But I know that theater specifically did, like, move a Joker screening out of there. So... It is inextricably linked to the larger conversation we're having about Joker is these concerns. So, I, you know, I, uh, I, I really am interested to see what happens when a wide audience sees the movie, whether or not these concerns uh, impact, dampen the opening uh, weekend. I know Warner Brothers is concerned that it will affect their bottom line, uh, these cultural concerns. And I know that they canceled uh, the red carpet aspect of their premiere. So, you know, it's it's a very fraught uh, film. And uh, I was saying before we started, which I know we've been talking about, but uh, as I was saying before we were recording, I think it's the narrative of the Joker is really going to be shaped by its wide release. This is not a like festival shaped story, uh, I think. You know, some films sort of die in the festival and not that not the Joker would because it like, you know, it, it the, won the Golden Lion. It won the Golden Lion. Exactly. <laughs> it's not like it's not that. But, uh, you know, I re- because of the populist appeal of this film, I think it really is something that we're going to have to wait and see what the general public thinks as well. Yeah. So yeah, general public in this case includes you and me, Joanna, since we haven't yes. seen it yet. So yeah, you're, uh, we the, you're will the hoi ploy. Be, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we'll be joining the unwashed masses seeing Joker this weekend. Um, but speaking of prestigious festivals where people get to see things early, uh, Richard, you joined uh, all of New York City film Twitter, as far as I can tell, by waking up at the crack of dawn and uh, complaining about seeing three and a half hours of The Irishman last Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, and despite the fact that I keep hearing people say that the first 90 minutes are maybe not that great, uh, <laughs> people seem to like it anyway. <laughs> Yeah, I think I might actually still be in that screening. I just, this could be. A, you guys could just be part of a dream. You've um, been, you've been aged up, actually. <laughs> yeah. um, I know what people mean when they say that because there, you know, it's a long movie, um, and there was a lot of, you know, the fact that it was early in the morning, and it was, the, you know, the sort. It was on last Friday, which was the opening day for the New York Film Festival, and there was a party that night, and so it was just like it felt like a big day, sort of weighted with anticipation. Um, and so then you actually have to watch the movie and sort of assess it on its own terms and try to forget, you know, everything surrounding it. Um, and, you know, for, yeah, a, a bulk of it, I was like, okay, like this is, you know, a Scorsese film about gangsters. I've seen this before. I've saw Goodfellas. I saw Casino. And it struck me as well-made and, and engaging, but like nothing new. But I think then the film takes a turn and I think that's what towards something a bit more thoughtful, a bit more um, considering, you know, uh, considerate of Scorsese's age and the actors he's working with, Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, Al Pacino, their age and their sort of legacy in the, uh, you know, pantheon of gangster cinema. Um, and that's when the film, I think, to me, gets really interesting. So I understand why people are kind of, when they tweet a reaction to it or whatever, are breaking the movie up into those two kind of component parts. Um, but fear not. It's not as if you're going to have to wait an hour and a half for the movie to get interesting. It's interesting from frame one. Um, it yeah. just becomes something more interesting uh, later on in the film. I've heard of comparisons to Unforgiven, you know, the way that uh, Clint Eastwood makes this late in life Western kind of questioning the entire notion of a Western. And it, it does seem like something that Scorsese would be at a good point in his life to do, to kind of question the structure of the gangster movie entirely. Is that right to you? Yeah, I actually hadn't thought about that, but that feels right to me. Um, you know, I think that, well, I, I, I'm a sort of 
a naysayer on a lot of Eastwood's latter films. So like, uh, but uh, so, you know, take that with a grain of salt. But like, I think Scorsese is also, unlike Eastwood, doing something really interesting stylistically and, you know, with mm-hmm. with The Irishman, where I think Eastwood has just, has just gotten very straightforward with his filmmaking. Well, he's got his Richard Jewell movie coming out later, so we might be that's, talking a lot about right. Clint Eastwood that's this right. year. Surprise! Um, but, you know, I appreciate any filmmaker, especially one of Scorsese's renown, who can take an honest assessment of his past work, and I think in particular Goodfellas and Casino, that he made, you know, 28 years ago and 23 years ago-ish, and, you know, both appreciate them and sort of, you know, he still does the same style. He still employs two of the same actors, De Niro and Pesci, while also kind of critiquing himself, you know, and, and critiquing, I think, the mythos that those films helped enshroud organized crime in, you know, and I think, you know, something I said in my review is that those movies, I think, were direct, you know, precursors to The Sopranos, which was basically this sort of herald trumpet blast, along with Sex and the City, kind of announcing the arrival of the new TV golden age. Uh, And, you know, so Scorsese is weirdly kind of indirectly responsible for that or helped that kind of happen. And now he's doing a movie with Netflix. And I think that, like, in a weird way, there's a kind of contemplation about that, about just everyone getting older and the world changing and maybe some of the old models and some of the old antiheroes are inadequate uh, emblems for our time. And I think The Irishman really intriguingly kind of gets at all that. It just the way you're talking about that, the idea of like the passing of time, does it feel like a spiritual uh, companion to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Yeah, it does. It does. I think absolutely. I think that what the Irishman has over Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, in my estimation, is the benefit of Scorsese being, you know, what, 20 years older than Quentin Tarantino is. Um, and and I think also Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a little bit less self-referencing. Uh, mm. I mean, I think Tarantino is referencing cinema as a sort of, you know, idea. Um, Not his own career. I don't feel like it as quite as much, no. no. Yeah. Whereas The Irishman, I mean, in the last especially like 30, 40 minutes, like, I'm, I'm not going to tell you how because I don't want to spoil anything. But like, you're like, oh, yeah, this is like... <laughs> It's about itself in a way, you know, and and, hmm. and and sometimes that can be kind of an annoying that that sort of meta sort of self-awareness. I, I compared it to um, Pedro Almodovar's Pain and Glory, which is also at the New York Film Festival, which is also um, a very self-referential film, much more directly than The Irishman is. I mean, it's literally about like an aging Spanish gay filmmaker. <laughs> so <laughs> that's pretty much on the nose. But like but both of those movies, I think very wisely for guys in their 70s, like just sort of like okay like what have i made let me assess this let me think about mortality and 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 i did not expect such gentleness from a martin scorsese gangster movie but there it is mm-hmm. so i don't know if i'm seeking out a turn for you but i feel like the de-aging technology is the thing that i don't know if you can even describe whether or not it works and i feel like you have to see it for yourself but uh but how's it work um it's not as intrusive <laughs> as you think it's going to be okay um you notice it i mean i'm not gonna lie you do notice it uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, De Niro has a certain deadness behind his eyes when he's been aged down. They're not turning him into a 22-year-old. They're, they're, it's pretty much he's like maybe late 30s into his into middle age. Um, I'm choosing to believe that late 30s is not middle age <laughs> for selfish reasons. <laughs> um, uh, you know, so, so it's there. I think it works better with Pesci, weirdly, than it does De Niro. And I don't really know how much of it they do with Pacino. But, like, it is not the distraction I feared it would be. Uh, so I yeah. think that's the big relief. It's like you can watch the movie and assess it without just sort of being obsessed with like, oh, look at that weird face. 
And you wrote in your review that it matters that it's the same actors. Like it was worth yeah. doing this rather than recasting them as uh, with 22-year-olds. Well, that's very much the thing with this movie being three and a half hours long. You're like, oh, brother, like how could, how could a movie be this long? But actually, this is the rare movie that really earns that time. It, it you know, there's really not, doesn't feel like there's a scene that extraneous or whatever. And part of that experience is that you're following these characters over, you know, a number of decades. And... I think it really matters that you are seeing some version of the same face for that entire, you know, 209-minute duration of the film. Um, mm-hmm. If it was a younger, you know, sort of De Niro lookalike playing him for the first half of the film, and then we switch to De Niro, I think some of the film's impact, especially what it has to say about aging and mortality at the end, toward the end of the film, would really be lessened because we haven't been with the same face uh, or the same person the whole time. So I I, th- I understand in retrospect why Scorsese kind of insisted on doing this and why he asked Netflix for $160 million to do it, <laughs> uh, which is insane. You know, it works. It does. I uh, Though that makes me worry that lesser filmmakers would be like, oh, that worked for them. Like, let's do it for our thing. And it's not going to work in the same way, you know? Mm, like Gemini Man. Um, so... <laughs> Well, something that I'm curious about, and and I don't know if you can speak to this having seen it, like not only in the big screen, but in this festival setting, is how much this will feel like a mini series to people who watch it on Netflix, given Mm. its runtime, given that it takes 90 minutes to get going. So like the joke I made on Twitter or something about like, you know, the first three episodes, Mm -hmm. a little slow, but then it like (laughs) kicks in halfway through like a classic Netflix show. So, you know, like... I don't know if that's even a danger. I don't know if it even matters, but is there any danger of this playing almost like the most prestige of prestige TV shows on Netflix? Um, Well, I think one thing that differentiates, it looks incredible. I mean, like the aesthetic of the film feels like a movie you pay $15 to see in the theater. Like, So that, I think, differentiates it from some of Netflix's, um, you know, serial content. But, you know, I there were conversations I overheard right after the screening or at the party later that night there were people who were like, if Netflix was smart, they would break it up that way. You know, they would, they, you know, they, 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 there are probably, I can't think off the top of my head, but there are probably cuts or, you know, kind of act breaks in the movie where you could, you could kind of put it online as three different installments or something. Because, yeah, I think that's, you know, I think that is how some people will watch it. They'll watch an hour and a half, they'll go to bed, they'll go to work, they'll come home, they'll watch the second part, you know. And I think that's fine. I don't think the, I don't think the experience necessarily loses that much if you break it up that way. Though I think there also is a benefit from just being there for the long slog because I think you really feel the weight of the movie by the end if you, if you do it in one sitting. Speaking of um, gangster movies, that is definitely how I watched The Godfather, like mm-hmm. over <laughs> really, like I think they used to break it up in installments for TV, right? Um, so that's, Or Gone with the Wind. I've definitely watched Gone with yeah. the Wind and like probably like out of order too. I'm not saying that like that's the ideal to- way to watch that movie, but as, yeah. like as, I mean, even like the most stone cold classics eventually get that treatment. The Martin Scorsese would probably like drop dead if he heard us talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know, I think the interesting thing about the movie and and that he did it with Netflix and maybe that was just a financial decision but i got the sense from it that like there is a bit of non-purism to the movie like i i i feel like he would be more amenable to people watching it the way they want to watch it than maybe some other filmmakers would interesting like me dreaming of one day telling Christopher Nolan about that time I watched Dunkirk on my phone <laughs> <laughs> on the plane. Why I do you want to big, hurt him? I don't know. I just think it would be funny. No, I watched it on the big <laughs> screen first, obviously. But then I like later I watched it again on my phone. Yeah, I did it. So, all right, so Richard, so what's the Oscar prognosis going to be? Okay. Um, 
I I mean, it's a really crowded year, but I, w- I mean, I, I could see De Niro getting a nomination for sure. He's really good in the movie. Lead, um, right? For lead. And then yeah. I think that, but I think the sure bet is Joe Pesci getting a supporting actor nomination. You know, he won a supporting actor Oscar for Goodfellas, and he's not playing the same role. It's it's uh, it, or even a version of the same role. It, it's a different kind of Pesci turn. I think he's really great. It's my favorite performance in the movie. Pacino does Big Al yelling his histrionics, so maybe that will catch people's attention more than Pesci's kind of quieter, more actually really supporting work. But that's where I could see it going. I mean, I think the technicals, uh, you know, the editing, the production design, the cinematography are all contenders. And I think, you know what, like if the Academy is not too saturated in, you know, other Netflix films, it's also a best picture. It's also a best director candidate. I, you know, I I, I think that it has those kind of legs. Well, doesn't it feel like the Netflix film, like even before we saw it, we all knew Marriage Story was going to be a big contender, but like it's a more intimate movie, so maybe not a best picture thing. So Netflix seems to be spreading their energy a little bit more than they did last year, where it was kind of Roma or bust, but it does feel like the Roma of this crowd just for the technicals alone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it. it I think that, I mean, you know, I think we do a lot of inferring about Academy voters' psychology here, so I'll do some more. <laughs> I, I, would, I would imagine that in some ways there is a contingent in the Academy that looks at something like Roma or something like The Irishman where a, you know, very talented auteur filmmaker gets to, with with their, with their a, with a trusted creative team, just gets to do whatever they want because they had the money to do it. And I think there is a certain, there, w- there would be a certain desire to celebrate that, you know, like, like Roma mm-hmm. was at the Oscars last year. So yeah, I could see The Irishman kind of getting in on that sort of wave of support for unfettered filmmaker uh, access to funds, basically, and just being like, okay, if you if you let filmmakers do that, we'll give you all the awards because you know we want it. We want that to continue. So I, I don't know. I think there's a certain um, economic dimension to the Irishman that, uh, while kind of galling to people on the outside, 160 million dollars for this, uh, I think in the industry people are going to recognize that, like, well, that's the kind of money you need to put behind a genius filmmaker to get him, you know, to have him make his you know, next masterpiece. Something I'll be really curious to see is the um, the Irishman box office. Like I, I think we were all, or at least I was a little surprised by how many people turned out for the Tarantino film earlier this year. Um, I think I had just sort of given up on people turning out for non-superhero films. But they turned out for Tarantino, and I feel like they would turn out for Scorsese, but what does knowing that if they just wait a little while and can watch it on Netflix, like what will, like I feel like those are two good like case studies to look at the, yeah. the, the true impact of something that will stream on Netflix pretty shortly after its theatrical release. So Yeah. And then looking at Roma's box office is even on box office mojo, which is annoying, honestly. <laughs> like I know we can't know how many people watched on Netflix, but I thought we would get box office receipts. Um, so I'm curious because like, it seems like the Irishman has a potential to play more widely. Like Scorsese had a huge box office hit with the Wolf of Wall Street not that long ago. He can make long movies about grown-ups right. work. Yeah, because Wolf of Wall Street was what three hours. Yeah. Yeah. So if we're probably not quite as long as Irishman. And the other thing is, you know, that I don't mean this derisively, but like The Irishman is the ultimate sort of dad movie, not just because it's about gangsters and it's Scorsese, but because it's kind of about dad concerns, you know, older dad concerns, like like toward the end, especially. So like I I feel how dare you say that in the year of Ford v Ferrari, Richard? Oh God. Like, the dads are going to war this year. Irishman versus Ferrari. The dad oh, wars. Wow. <laughs> Begun the Gangs- dad wars. Gangsters have. versus cars. Wow. Um, 
Yeah, and what's I mean, I thought the the reaction out of the Irishman screening in this uh, New York screening was one of the nuttier things I've seen in a long time. The like rhapsodic, almost like cultish reactions from uh, almost entirely white male uh, film critics in New York <laughs> uh, saying like, how dare anyone ever, qu-? it was like, it was like a Snyder fest. It was like, how dare anyone ever question Scorsese again, sort of like weird oh boy. cultish like reactions on Twitter. And I was just like, I didn't know. I did not know that this was, I mean, obviously I, I think Scorsese is a genius. I revere him like absolutely. But I did not know it was this like, I don't know, charged. It was really interesting. So I'll well, really, so you, I'll, I mean, you go see the new Martin Scorsese movie at the New York film festival on the Upper West side. Like you could not be more like taking a pilgrimage to Scorsese land than, uh, than right. that. So there's something about that atmosphere that lends itself to that. I think with the cast and the, and the director in attendance, I'm just saying like, I don't know that it's a, uh, the most accurate temperature mm-hmm. of like what the whole world will think of this film. So no, for sure. Kind of incredible what a um, box office run he's been on since The Departed, or since The Aviator, really. Like, he's had a, he's had like, no, like a lot of surprisingly big hits and then silence, which is a crazy anomaly. Anyway. Yeah. Well, I think that um, people who see The Irishman will be surprised that the last portion of the movie feels a lot more like silence than it does like Goodfellas or Casino, which is, I think, a sort of interesting uh, mark of Scorsese's evolution. Well, so Richard, you also went to the premiere night party, which uh, is always a pretty splashy event. Um, what was the the vibe you were getting from that? Hangover, uh, because <laughs> <laughs> not to not to diss the party or the brand or whatever, because it's always a nice time. But like Campari was the sponsor at the party, and <laughs> there were only Campari cocktails and and beer and wine, like no nothing else. And I just like that's just like. You're asking for for, <laughs> for hangovers. Another <laughs> Negroni another... season lasted into September this year. Yeah, but no, I think that the party was fun. It's always like the kind of kickoff to the season in New York. You know, right right after it turns to fall, and you know, it's a nice mix of press people and industry people, and you know, various other folks. And it was really fun to be at the party this year, where the movie that you know the opening night movie was such a big deal. You know, um, I think that's a real coup for New York Film Festival, which has in most recent years, I think, struggled a little bit with, like, getting the big world premieres. The Irishman uh, felt really exciting. And, you know, I, I hope that also the, the the sort of glare of that attention also shed some light on the other films that they've programmed, which are, yeah, mostly replays from other festivals, but, like, really cool stuff, like the El Motobar film, like Bacurau, this great film from Brazil. Um, and actually, I have a little anecdote about that, if I can share it with you. Ooh, a little sure. Bacurau yeah. an- anecdote? A Bacurau anecdote. So, oh, yes. Very so kind. back when I saw that movie at Cannes, uh, I took to Twitter afterward, um, and I won't spoil anything about the movie because everyone should go see that movie um, uh, unspoiled. And I I wrote a really elegant tweet, which was, Bacurau, more like Bacurau. Um, <laughs> that was uh, b- Brazilian film Twitter founded because as we know Brazilians are I think among the most active people on Twitter um, and and that so they all kind of retweeted it and you know whatever that was in May so last night I went to a party for Kino Lorber the sort of boutique distributor that puts out a lot of great foreign films and I met the filmmakers behind Baccarat and I, I you know Rosé and a half in was like, you know, that's actually kind of funny. I tweeted about your movie and they were like, that was you? Oh my God. And they like got the producer of the film. They're like, this is the back wow, wow guy. 
And she was like, oh, we talk <laughs> about that all the time in the office. And I was like, so um, just just take a note, folks, that like even your dumbest of tweets will like, we'll, we'll oh, be no. seen by people. Yeah. Um, anyway, so that's all to say that like there are gr- other great films at New York Film Festival. And I hope that The Irishman, uh, you know, the, all the sort of fanfare for that brought attention to these other great, um, you know, arguably smaller movies. Um, Joanna, can you tell me how much Fantastic Fest was just like the New York Film Festival? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I don't know if you know this about me, but I um, tweeted out a couple months ago, Parasite, more like Paranice. Uh, <laughs> no. uh, <laughs> yeah, Fantastic Fest is a very different animal for the New York Film Festival. Uh, I was there for about nine days. And I think the last, the closing night movie was Knives Out. And during the intro, director Ryan Johnson said something like, uh, by now your innards are shellacked with queso. And I was like, like, yep, that's about right. Nine yep, days is a long <laughs> time. So long, so long. But yeah, so Fantastic Fest, Austin, a great, fun genre film festival that gets, you know, a few films sort of hop, skip, and a jump over there from TIFF. Uh, we got The Lighthouse, Dolomite, Jojo Rabbit, Knives Out, you know, which had all just premiered. And then, like, I feel like those filmmakers went directly to Austin uh, to screen there. Um, And that was really fun. It's fun to see uh, a lot of those movies with, like, a really amped up Alamo Drafthouse audience. But far and away, like, with all the offerings on the table, a lot of, like, really cool uh, new filmmakers on the slate, Parasite far and away everyone's favorite film of the festival, which I know we've been talking about since can, but like cannot underestimate, undersell how big that was at this particular festival. And it didn't even get like it didn't even get one of the big uh like nighttime primetime spots. It got like an earlier in the evening spot. For some reason, I don't know why this complicated. Did they not have like talent with it? Is that one of the no? Factors? Bong Joon Ho was there. Like, like the oh, that poor man is just has been traveling the world all year. Yeah. <laughs> he had like a plaque d- dedicated to him at the draft house. Like it was this whole big cool thing. But like he was there. He was doing pre- like ton of press. Like he was really doing it. Um, I don't know. It's just like schedule you know, uh, you know, uh, Jenga or whatever, but, um, it did not even get like one of the big, like late ones, but it was just the biggest thing that people were talking about, you know, and, and I learned at the festival that Parasite is already his most popular international film, like more popular than anything he's made, like Snowpiercer or anything he's made. And it's, it's an incredible film. And what's funny, well, I don't know. Can I, uh, mm, spoilers I, are tough for this movie. I don't want to spoil. I'm not just going to spoil anything. I'm just going to say I thought the title was more literal than it was. I just didn't like look into what Parasite was about. And uh, since it was playing at a genre film festival, I you assumed expected it was to be little, about like actual bugs. I, I was I thought it was about bugs. And <laughs> it's not. And so like so I'll, I'll, the only spoiler I will give you is that it's not very genre-y, You know, uh, so not the in the it, like not in the way that like the host is or like Snowpiercer. Like he's made right. much more genre. Exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and that's not a first for Fantastic Fest. Like Burning played there last year. Like this is they're interested in in global film uh, as well as genre film. But I just I, for some reason, I thought it was like more genre friendly than it was. I was uh, delighted by it and delighted to just see it be the the shiny star of the festival. So there you go. Parasite. Uh, but Jojo Rabbit was like, uh, you know, it feels like a million years ago that I saw it. That whole Emmys happened since I saw it. But <laughs> 
<laughs> that, that was the opening night film, and that was interesting because it was so fresh off of its uh, TIFF win. Like you guys had, just, it was like the same week, right? Yeah, you guys had just recorded um, an episode of Little Gold Men that was like, "Is Jojo Rabbit our god now?" or whatever the title of that episode was. So, like, you know, that, that <laughs> those were the expectations crowding around the film, and it landed really well, but not earth-shatteringly well at the festival uh, even though it's a very like Taika Waititi friendly festival um, people really liked it but they didn't you know they weren't losing their minds over it so I don't know I, I I'm genuinely curious to see what happens to Jojo Rabbit on the on the long award circuit um, after all that but yeah in terms of like award season narrative I would just say like the parasite momentum continues to gather um, I also saw this great it's not eligible for awards, I believe. Um, I don't think it's coming out until next year, but uh, A24 picked up this film St. Maud out of TIFF. I think it was like one of the midnighters at I TIFF. I heard some people talking about that at TIFF, yeah. Yeah, um, and it's screened here. It's a first-time feature from a female uh, director, and it was really good. And I, you know I'm not like a horror person. So what was I doing at a genre film festival? I don't know, but uh, <laughs> I went and saw St. Maud. It's like, it's like creepy lesbian Catholic horror. <laughs> Like, that's kind of the best kind of horror, I think. And uh, it a great performance from Jennifer Ely. And uh, it's really, really slow burn and really, really good film. So I'm excited for people to check that out. And then, um, you know, The Lighthouse is one of the surprise screenings. And people really responded well to that. Uh, not myself, because I get seasick uh, watching <laughs> things. And it doesn't a take lot place of, like, on a boat. It's on dry land. It's just a lot. Well, no, I mean, it's. I really admire the film, but there was just a lot of throbbing wave crashing that um, that <laughs> did not sit well with me and my case of shellac innards. But uh, so it shouldn't really, be like really a four DX thing where your seat moves along with the movie. <laughs> And you get like a sea spray in your face. Uh, no, but I mean, it's bravura performances from Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe. So um, that movie feels so perfect for Fantastic because it's not sort of genre like a little bit, but it's just so weird and it's so it's stylish so that like, yeah, it really needs you to like get on board with it. And it feels like Fantastic Fest is a place to do that. Yeah, absolutely. People were so, so, so excited to talk about it, um, you know, because it's in this like different aspect ratio. It's in black and white. And Robert Eggers is so, uh, the director is so, he's one of those directors who can talk about a film and talk about all the deep cut references that he's used in the film without sounding insufferable. And I think that's an incredible feat <laughs> of, of uh, speechifying. If you can like give your deep cut references and not sound like you're condescending and which is, he just sounds enthusiastic and really smart. So um, yeah, I'll be curious if like, if the, if the Pattinson heads, the, the, the Twihards. Oh uh, man, I guess we do still call them that. I mean, how can we not? But it, do they come out for Pattinson's weird run of films? I hope they do. I hope they see all of his weird films uh, because what a joy. Uh, yeah. So that's Fantastic Fest. I mean, I don't know if like, I don't know how you guys are feeling about Jojo Rabbit uh, a week and a half, two weeks later. How much time has passed? Oh, um, God. If what, that still feels movie, like the story. What movie is this? Remind me. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Richard, you've like you've been surrounded by festival people for near film festival. Like, does it feel like Jojo Rabbit still exists? Uh, it, it, like <laughs> sort of. I mean, I don't know. I, I someone someone on Twitter the other day was talking about. Well, they were talking about Joker, but about how like especially this year, like it feels like these all these movies have this like steep 
you know, ascent to high profile at festivals and then just kind of drop off. And, and you know, it's the media's fault for not, um, you know, waiting to, you know, holding coverage until the movie's out and people can actually see it. Um, and so maybe Jojo Rabbit's suffering a little of that. But I, I think it's kind of lying in wait. You know, I think that, like, we're past the flurry of the festivals and all that. And so now it's just more like, okay, let's wait for this to come out and see how it does. I mean, you know, I think that an obvious example, you know, in last year was Green Book, where, like, you know, it came out of nowhere, won Toronto. I feel like it kind of lay dormant for a bit, came out, didn't do quite as well as maybe some people thought it would, but, like, it ran, the you know, the, the sort of steady race from release to a win. And, you know, maybe JoJo will will be the same story. Uh, I think that maybe journalists uh, have, have sort of kind of assess that movie and written it off or, or kind of, you know, put it on the shelf and, you know, but like that, that by no means uh, indicates that the movie uh, has lost any momentum, I don't think. So talking about the Irishman now feel like, I feel like this season has lacked a uh, narrative a little bit. And like a lot of times these narratives don't become clear for a while. So I'm not saying that like this is set in stone, but just thinking about again, once upon a time in Hollywood and the Irishman as these two movies of masters from different generations, but have been around a long time, kind of assessing their own work and the industry that they're in. That feels like such an irresistible thing for the Oscars. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting thing to put next to each other. Like last year, you've got this lineup of, I think, it's four or maybe Adam. So it's like most like a lot of newcomers, like Alfonso Caron even like had won an Oscar before, but hasn't been around as long as Scorsese and Tarantino. Um, I just feel like Jojo Rabbit can like definitely has tons of room in this category. And you can see Taika Waititi getting a best director nomination and everything else. But if like people want to talk about movies and talk about like people who are such a big deal in the form, like Scorsese and Tarantino are going to have such a huge grip on the the narrative from here. Well, yeah. Until I mean, Little Women comes and wins every category. Like, which yeah, we all expect Little at this Women. Point. <laughs> Kyle Buchanan at the New York Times, the their carpetbagger, uh, he has Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as the front runner to win Best Picture right now. And That's kind of I, how I have felt at this point. Not that like I would set that in stone, but it feels that way, right? Well, yeah, I was gaming this out with some other, uh, you know, people at the Irishman party last weekend and we were kind of like we were sort of like you know that like that like gif of the lady with all the figures you know kind of her eyes looking back and forth we were like doing that for 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 once upon a time and it was like yeah you know actually that sort of does make sense right now um, we're so fun at parties. We just like get yeah. in a big group and it's just like, what's going to win Best Picture? In Drinking our Kimparis and <laughs> regretting Invite <it> later. us. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have, a, I have a question about that. Uh, and, it, and it speaks to some mail that I've received this week. Did you guys receive some mail from Netflix this week? Uh, I got coasters for American Factory. I got no fewer than seven packages in the last two weeks from Netflix Documentary Awards uh, okay, consideration. Yeah. So yeah. I got a, like a stack of screeners and then some swag. Mm-hmm. And it is feels very early for that to be happening. Well, and the Critics' Choice Documentary Awards are pretty early. So I think that's the reason behind it. That's true, but it just it feels like it's they're the only ones and they're, they're a little early. Like It feels intentional yes. to be like, pay attention to, like, let's go early and catch their attention. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know if that sounds um, <laughs> like I'm making too much of a story out of it, but it feels like like uh, there's a shock and awe of the sheer number of things that came to my house in the last mm-hmm. week and a half. And then there's just the timing, which feels not like crazy early, but just like a little early as in like we can get in early before the competition gets there and gets their attention. Yeah. And um, so it just sort of speaks to the increased like maybe tactical awareness 
of the Netflix campaigns, and uh, I will be very curious. I mean, like, Roma was already sort of bananas last year, but I'll be very curious to see what they do with Marriage Story and Irishman and, and Dolomite. How, how creative Hopes. they try to get uh, with those with those campaigns. You yeah, know? and I should say that Netflix is also bringing a ton of movies to Film Fest 919 um, here in Chapel Hill in North Carolina. Um, they brought Roma last year and brought the actresses and kind of really impressed me by how all out they went for this fairly small and new regional festival. Um, and now they're going to have uh, basically everything but The Irishman. It's uh, Two Popes, Marriage Story, Dolomite, and um, a large Netflix contingent. So they are, yeah, they're, they're running the circuit this year again. Right, and they're bringing all of all of those to the Mill Valley Film Festival it kicks off here next week. They're bringing all of them. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, it's they're they're on the hunt. Uh, that's no that's no headline. That's no shocking story. I'm just saying, like, I, I think it'll be fun to watch, like, what their different tactics might even be this year. And I so. think that you know, they're 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 going to wear down a lot of resistance, you know. And there still is resistance. I mean, and maybe it's not less American. I mean, at 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 the Venice Film Festival, um, when the Netflix logo came up on the screen, which it did three times because they had three films there people booed, you know, so that's still hmm. happening, but that's maybe, a you know, but here in the States, how do a lot of people watch a movie like The Irishman or something like Roma, they see a filmmaker get all the resources they want, how do you sort of resist that, you know, you're like, yeah. okay, like, so maybe that's where I go if if Scorsese's going there and Quran is going there and Baumbach is going there, like, maybe that's where, you know, Nicole Holof Center, um, and well, and um, not the Oscars, but Michael Bay's trailer just dropped this yeah, morning right? for this incredible, like very expensive Michael Bay movie that's going to be exclusively on Netflix in December. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So like, I think that that's, you know, maybe that's how Sarandos and whoever else kind of sees themselves winning the 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 war against, the, the, you know, this resistance to, to their platform is that like, well, we're just going to throw a lot of money at the problem. Uh, and we're going to, you know, slowly or maybe quickly convince filmmakers and, and thus other people in the industry that this is where it's at. If you want to get your thing made, uh, just, you know, exhibitors be damned. What is it that uh, that Brian Cox screams at Cherry Jones in that episode of Succession? Just like, just take the fucking money and right. runs out yeah. of the room. <laughs> yeah. 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 Money wins. Um, yeah. The the other obvious. I mean, I've already mentioned this, but the other obvious unpredictable factor this year is the fact that Fox Searchlight, which has always been like canny when it comes to awards, now has like the might of Disney behind it. Right. So yeah. that's that's the Jojo Rabbit narrative. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Yeah, and Searchlight, you know, it's their 25th year, and they have the little, you know, thing showing before their movies, like 25 years. Like, like Searchlight has a, a nice narrative this year as well. It may be not as quite as strong as Netflix's, but also that's maybe an asset in that, like, you know, they're a more traditional film company. So yeah, I, and I, they have a lot. They have you know a lot of resources to throw behind Jojo Rabbit, uh, which, uh, you know, so. We're only we've only just begun the, the, this this feels you know, feels battle. like they're yeah feels like their best shot at this point. But it was um, interesting. I was speaking with David Sims, friend of the podcast, about this, and he was noting that every major film studio except I believe Paramount, well, they had Rocket Man, which didn't quite work for them, has uh, at least one Oscar contender, like like strong Oscar contender, which is really interteresting. Wow. Uh, recommend at least they maybe compete for those costumes, which I'm still thinking about that silk kimono. <laughs> um, okay, are we ready to talk about best actress for a little bit and Judy? Yeah. Yes. 
All right. I still haven't seen Judy, um, so I won't weigh in too much on there. But uh, it opened pretty well. The fact that Judy and uh, Downton Abbey are really running the box office right now brings joy to my heart. Like, I'm just <laughs> grateful for those boomers. Um, and Renee Zellweger has kind of established herself in this, this kind of, like, ironclad frontrunner position in the Best Actress race for, like, so many reasons. Richard, you wrote a whole piece last week about how it, the performance is worthy on its own. It's not just a narrative. It's not just a, oh, she's playing a real person, so we have to throw an Oscar at her. Um, do you feel like that's getting discussed enough? as the renaissance uh, gets started? Uh, well, <laughs> I'm not I the first person fully to say that. Su- no, I fully support the renaissance, both the idea and the term. Um, <laughs> Reject. Reject. Thank you. But, <laughs> Thank you, Richard. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that, you know, the thing that I do worry a little bit about, and yes, it's early, I know, is look at the Glenn Close situation where yeah. everyone's like, well, she's going to win. Okay. And I, you know not to brag, have spoken to several Academy members who did not vote for Glenn Close they, because they thought, oh, well, everyone else will vote for her. She'll win. And then she didn't. Yeah. Uh, and so I do think that maybe there is that sort of inertia thing happening that could happen with Renee Zellweger. Um, but that's why kind of like thinking about that is why I wrote the piece that'll be uh, that's online now um, is kind of like. Yes, there is this sort of meta-narrative about Renee Zellweger coming out of a sort of self-imposed semi-retirement to do this iconic role, and and, and maybe that's the thing that wins her an, an award. And I don't think she's necessarily shying away from that narrative herself. Her PR people certainly aren't. But there's also this incredible, actual, just technically wonderful performance at, at, you know, at the center of Judy, which is a fine movie. It's a good enough movie to support her. But uh, I... You know, I, I think that those two things can get confused, the sort of meta narrative and the actual performance in a way that they might not for a male actor. You know, um, everyone can mm-hmm. just focus on Daniel Day-Lewis's incredible technical skill as a performer. And that's enough. We don't have to think about the Daniel Day-Lewis of it all. Not that there's much we know about him anyway. But you know what I mean? Like, And, and I think that for, for Zellweger, it's, you know, because she's playing this iconic person and whatever, she has a tougher hill to climb to sort of eschew all that and get people to just focus on the work she does in the film, which I think is really great. Well, there's a there's a few other differences in the narrative though this year, right? Like, I, I don't think it's quite accurate that like Glenn Close was anointed at the winner and that was it because there was the whole Lady Gaga narrative that was happening at the same time, and I don't see a Lady Gaga like analog this year. Um, and then also, she's, she's, it's in supporting and it's Jennifer Lopez. Yeah, yeah, that's supporting. You know what I mean? If if like yeah. you know she loses her mind and runs and lead, then we have a you know ball game. But she's gonna run in supporting <laughs> and that's fine. But um. But also, Judy like made close to three million at the box office, which is already one third the total domestic gross of the wife. As in, like people were not talking about the wife because in they were talking about Glenn Close and it's Glenn Close's time, but they weren't talking about the performance in the film because a lot of people did not see that film. Whereas and Judy, it was, like, and the performance more, was like good. It was a very good Glenn Close performance. I think, but it was all Renee about gotten, that narrative. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Whereas Renee is getting sort of the Rami Malek treatment where it's like a middling film uh, with a great performance. At the, well, I mean, your mileage may vary, but that was the Bohemian Rhapsody narrative, right? Is that like, well, Bohemian Rhapsody was trash in a lot of ways, but Rami was good in it. And, you know, like uh, Renee is good in Judy, which is 
I, you know, I saw it last night. I liked it way better than Bohemian Rhapsody, but um, is still like kind of a, a middling movie, you know. So um, I see the comparisons you're making there, Richard, but I think it's a little different in in Renee's favor, which is you know, which is fun. That being said, she does already have an Oscar, so you know, it's yeah. not it's not quite the it's Glenn's time sort of. Story. But it's supporting. And I think that people really do view it as different. You know, like the way when Kate Blanchett won for Blue Jasmine, it was like, finally, Kate Blanchett has won her Oscar. It's like, well, she had the thing for the aviator, <laughs> you know, but people forgot, you know, and also yeah. she was playing, yeah. Yeah, she was playing another famous person. But yeah, I mean, we'll see. I hope that it's a different narrative than the Glenn Close situation. Obviously, they're two different actors and they, they have different stories. Um, I just see a little bit like I, I, I worry that she could become a victim of apathy and assumptions, you know. Well, yeah. like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to focus on whoever you know else is my favorite actress because like it's there's no way that she's not winning, you know. And if well, enough should, people think that she doesn't win, we should talk about the other favorites though because I think the thing that would unseat Renee Zellweger is if critics really circle behind one particular other best actress candidate, and it doesn't feel like that's happening yet. And no one has seen Bombshell yet, um, so that's uh, Charlize Theron and maybe Margot Robbie, depending on how that shakes out. And uh, Little Women is uh, isn't out yet either, and Saoirse Ronan's lead in that. But other than that, like Scarlett Johansson's kind of the only option and as we've discussed like she has her trouble with critics and the type of people who would be voting for critics awards do you guys see another like like strong favorite emerging here no i think it's like i was thinking about sersha and about scarlet and that's about it um yeah, yeah scarlet is so good <laughs> in marriage story she's crazy uh, good in marriage and i story. just yeah i just wish that there wasn't this other this cloud that hangs over everything she does. You know what I mean? Because she's so good in that film. So it's too bad. Yeah, I mean, it's to Zellweger's benefit that this, unlike recent years, we, you know, we said it before on this show, like it's such a, it's, it's, it's a much heavier actor year than it is an actress year. You know, there are great performances by actresses like Elizabeth Moss in um, uh, Her Smell that I don't Never think forget. Will, will, will actually get anywhere. I don't think Aquafina in The Farewell will. I don't think that... Honor Burns, Lupita and yeah. Us, you know, I mean, maybe. Uh, yeah, Lupita and Us, like, feels like it could be a nomination, but it just feels like we're not talking about Us enough anymore for it to be, like, a real story. You know? I wouldn't count out Aquafina or Lupita just because of how and, like, up and down this category is. Like, I think some people are counting on Cynthia Erivo, but Harriet was really not that well-received at festivals, and she is beloved uh, in theater circles, but maybe not famous enough to carry the whole thing. Like, Bombshell could really be, you know, don't know what that's going to be. Um, and Us and The Farewell have awards campaigns for, you know, various elements of them, but it's something that they are more visible than, say, Her Smell, which, God knows, I would love to be paid to be run the campaign for Her Smell, but no has offered it to me yet. <laughs> <laughs> I think that um, Aquafina, I can definitely see winning a lot of critics awards and I can definitely see uh, a nomination for her. I'm not counting her out. Um, I just don't know that she's like tip top of the category. Sort yeah. Of thing, you know? I mean, yeah. Like, Richard, if you were voting in your film critics circle tomorrow, like who would you vote for? I would vote for Moss. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah maybe, I mean, who knows? Maybe that's what does it. Like it's like critics awards have invented Oscar campaigns before. No, it's true. And I don't, you know, I don't think that we should count anyone out at this point. It's only October 1st and we're recording this. Um, Yeah, I I, I think that this year will be a test of if campaigns have any efficacy, you know, like because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of stuff earlier the year that's smaller that was regarded well, but not enough to be, you know, a phenomenon, et cetera, et cetera. 
and and yet those names still sort of hang in the air in certain rooms when you talk to people who are you know voting for various things. So I don't know. We'll see if, if these campaigns can can you know push those things back into the consciousness well enough, or if again that sort of just like inertia will set in, and people will be like, ah, just rubber stamp it for Renee because you know I think I think it would be a deserving win, absolutely. Um, yeah. But uh, it, it could happen or not happen depending on uh, how sort of preordained it seems to people. Where, what do we think is the most crowded category? Is it best actor? Like, is that the... best actor is pretty crowded? Yeah. You know, like looking at I'm looking at the, the film experience, our friend Nathaniel Rogers, who has these great lists like Adam Driver, Joaquin Phoenix, Antonio Banderas, Christian Bale, Eddie Murphy, Leonardo DiCaprio, Adam Sandler, Jonathan Price. Then you get to Robert De Niro on this list. Like, that's a lot of people. And then, you know, Taron Edgerton, who would be, you know, I think deserve a long shot campaign and may have one, but like would stand a chance in any other year. Yeah. I don't know. Well, well, I know. Well, I know. This was our week to talk about Best Actress, and we did it. But I was just sort of curious, really quickly, if like what is the nail biter this year? And I guess we'll get to that uh, later. So I feel like last year Olivia Coleman's win like shook the ground of what Best uh, Actress is more than we give it credit for. Like it was such a satisfying win in so many ways, but it made no sense based on all of the Oscar narratives we were telling ourselves. So it makes me wonder if we're like chasing our own tails a little bit, and we don't know nearly as much as we think we do. Con- like constantly our narrative right here, little Goldman. <laughs> but maybe we have no idea what we're talking about. Um, well, it, doesn't the Coleman win feel kind of the function of what Richard was talking about in terms of like this weird behind the scenes thing that happened with Best Actress, where you had like Gaga and Glenn Close tying at a bunch, like you know, at a previous award ceremony, and then like you know, it feels like a vote split thing that happened, right? Like. Which yeah, is no pro- knock on Olivia Coleman winning. She's freaking great. I'm so glad she has an Oscar, but that feels like a, a weird vote split. Um, and like the power of a performance or a movie that people really love. Like, was that the only award that the favorite won? I think so. Or yeah. maybe, yeah. So, like, you know, the idea of people kind of going in and knowing they don't have anywhere else, like maybe it inclines you. It's hard to know how you think when you're filling out a ballot like that, but she was a great representative of the movie, obviously. I'm I'm fascinated to see what happens when Little Women hits, and it's so fun that it's like this bomb that's waiting to drop. Uh, the best kind don't of bomb. Know. I keep <laughs> I hearing it's very yeah. good from people who see it. I know. It. People who are going to see it who are not allowed to talk about it at least tell us that they like it, so we can yeah. pass it on secondhand. Revelatory. I was just so relieved. Like The first time I heard from someone who'd seen it and said it was good, I like the relief I felt was so immense because I've been counting on this movie so hard. I had forgotten that Winona got uh, Winona Ryder got an Oscar nomination for playing Joe. Well, it's a great uh, movie. I mean, that's the thing. I, I hope that people don't forget how good that that '94 version is because it, in the wake of all of the the, the new movie, because that that version's really great. Uh, well, next week is Joanna T's. We're going to go deep on Best Actor. Uh, my idea was to kind of pick an acting category each week this month to go deep on, and we'll have a lot to talk about after we've all seen Joker. So uh, stay tuned for more of that. In the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com, which is also where you can find the Joaquin Phoenix cover story and lots of other great stuff from all of us. You can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich, Richard. Rylaws. And Joanna. Joe wrote this. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best review of a Campari hangover goes to Katie Rich. The first 90 minutes are maybe not that great, 